Luke 22:14 to 23. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Thank you. Awesome. All right, so today we are continuing our series in Christian practices, and we're going to be looking at the practice of communion. Um, so it's something that's, you know, it's a pretty common occurrence in most Christian churches. There's a few variations in how different churches perform communion, and, and of course a few disagreements on some of the finer details. But generally speaking, the symbolism is widely agreed on in all churches. Thankfully, Jesus made that very clear when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Yeah makes it very clear that we can't argue what is being represented there. Um, a couple of weeks ago I was sharing about that sacrament of baptism and the word sacrament was defined as a physical manifestation of a spiritual truth. And you know, Baptism and communion are the two New Testament sacraments. And some denominations have a few extra ones but these two are the bare minimum that, that churches will have. Um, but as, as mentioned with baptism, it can look quite different across different churches, and that's okay, you know, whether that's full submersion or dunking, whatever that looks like. And the same is true for communion, as we'll unpack today. It can look a little bit different for different churches, but the key is, of course, the meaning behind it, not the physical details themselves. So again, if we were going to observe communion, what would we see? You'd see probably everyone lining up to receive little bit of bread and a little bit of wine or sometimes it might be a wafer looking thing or grape juice and usually when you're receiving the bread the person presenting it to you says this is the body of Christ given for you and with the wine wine or grape juice they say this is the blood of Christ shed for you and you know each church might have some slight variations of that wording but that's generally speaking what you'd see from the outward perspective at least and of course, the, the more important part is the meaning behind it, not what we see. So, and before people would come up and take that bread and wine, usually the priest or the pastor would say some very specific words introducing this time of communion. You know, in our Anglican church, we're a bit more formal than others, um, so in this case, it's quite useful. So, our, our prayer book actually suggests the following words to say It says, To you indeed be the glory, Almighty God. Because on the night before he died, your son, Jesus Christ, took bread. When he had given you thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he took the cup. When he had given you thanks, he gave it to them and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it, to remember me. 
And this language in, in the Anglican prayer book is straight out of 1 Corinthians. It, it's pretty much exactly how Paul explains this tradition to the church in Corinth. You know, some churches aren't quite as formal as this. They, they might summarise it or do a simplified version, but this is a good starting point, I think. And, you know, you could see in, the, in these words themselves, they're claiming the reason that we're doing this. You know, saying, because on the night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, do this to remember. He's telling us to do this, right? Same with the wine. He says, do this to remember me. So that's why we've got this tradition. Essentially, Jesus, Jesus has told us to do something to remember him. And that's where it comes from. The thing that I find quite amazing is you know, how our modern practice of communion is actually quite different from what I think Jesus was getting at. And I was kind of trying to think of some real terrible clickbait sort of titles for this sermon, you know, about how the church gets communion wrong, or you know, how you've been doing it all wrong your whole life, something like that. Um, something really arrogant sounding to make you sort of prick your ears up and pay attention. Um, and with this sermon, I'm kind of going on a bit of a journey where it's going to sound like I'm telling you that as Christians, we're doing it all wrong. And personally, in part, I think we are. <laughs> or at least, <laughs> at least we are missing out on some of the richness of it. It's probably a better way to phrase it. And I promise my conclusion is actually how it doesn't matter that we're doing it wrong. And perhaps actually it's, an, it's a good thing, which sounds like a weird thing to say. So, <laughs> got a good sermon outline? <laughs> Bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> I can sit down if you want. So that night of the Last Supper wasn't just a regular meal, it was a Passover feast. There was a yearly tradition that the Jewish people had that followed, for, it's been going for over a thousand years. And next year we're actually planning to host a Passover dinner um, sometime near Easter, so keep your eyes open for that. Um, if you haven't been to one before, I highly recommend it. Um, the first time I went along to one, it really opened my eyes to how incredibly connected the Old Testament and the New Testament are. You know, seeing the detail of this ancient feast and how it points to Jesus. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for that. Worst case scenario, you get a good feed of roast lamb. It'll be a good night, I promise. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I, I was planning not to go into too much detail about the, fe- the first Passover feast and how that tradition developed. But as I was trying to write the sermon it kind of reinforced me how much we actually have to know that in order for communion to make sense. You know, this, is, this Passover meal is the foundation for the meaning of communion. You know, that reading that we had with Jesus and his disciples at that Last Supper, was, it was literally a Passover meal. So there's a lot of context that comes with that that we miss out if we're not paying attention. So I'm going to try to give sort of a brief example of what happens at a Passover meal. There's a bit more to it than what I'm going to share today, but give you a brief snapshot. So this first Passover meal, we have to go back to the book of Exodus. So if you've got your Bibles, you can join me in Exodus 12. We'll be reading from here quite a bit today. You know, the, the Hebrew people, the, the descendants of Abraham, ended up in slavery in Egypt. And it, it states that they were there for 430 years. So you've got entire generations that this is all they knew, slavery in another nation. Looking forward to this deliverance and promised land and I'm sure you all know that story of, you know, that Moses gets called by God and delivers his people from Egypt after a series of, series of plagues. Anyone remember some of the plagues that happened in that story? Locusts. Blood in the water. Boils. Boils. Yeah, that sounds like a fun one. Frogs. Yeah. Death of the livestock. Death of the livestock. Yeah, so the last one was the death of the firstborn, which was the firstborn children and firstborn livestock. 
So as we read in Exodus 12, it says, While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice. One animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighbourhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either sheep or goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They have to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and the top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast the meat meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this animal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Bit of a long story there, sorry. No, don't apologize. <laughs> so they had to choose a lamb without defects to choose as a sacrifice. And they had to take the blood and paint it on the top and the sides of the door frames. And this is the only thing that would save them from that plague of death that was coming. The only thing that would save them was the blood of the innocent lamb. So you can already see these parallels you know, to Jesus, can't you? The innocent dying in our place, covered by the blood of Jesus, the lamb of God. And we're going to unpack this in more detail soon, but for now I just want to keep to continue reading in this Exodus chapter 12. It goes on to say, This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Anyone who eats bread made with yeast during the seven days of the festival will be cut off from the community of Israel. On the first day of the festival, and again on the seventh day, All the people must observe an official day for holy assembly. No work of any kind may be done on these days, except in preparation of food. Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought you, your forces, out of the land of Egypt this very day. This festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this day from generation to generation. The bread you eat must be made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day, of the, four, of the first month until the evening of the 21st day of that month. During those seven days, there must be no trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made with yeast this week will be cut off from the community of Israel. So this Passover event, become, it becomes a yearly festival. 
starting with a meal of the lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. And that was on the 14th day of their first month. And then the following, you know, the seven-day period, was tied to this festival of unleavened bread. They came to be called sort of the same thing, the week of Passover, even though Passover is technically one day. So you, you might see that interchangeably used. But yeah, for that week, they would not eat any leavened bread. So no yeast in your bread for that time. And you actually had to get it completely out of your house. Last bit from Exodus. It says, remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe this ceremony. Then your children will ask, what does this ceremony mean? And you will reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. They're, they're, told, they're told to observe this festival forever, and they're expected to teach their kids this. And their children would ask what it means, and you know, that, that's giving them that opportunity to tell them that this is a sacrifice to the Lord, remembering that time where he spared our families, when the blood of an innocent lamb was the only thing that would save them. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of these Passover celebrations, and I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to next year sharing on with you guys. Because in my opinion, you know, Passover is... I reckon it's the most amazing of the biblical traditions. And as Christians, we, we tend to have our focus on Christmas and Easter, you know, Good Friday, Jesus rises on Sunday. Sometimes we have the Ash Wednesday thing. But, but these traditions we have as churches, I feel, are missing half the story. They're, they're not bad traditions. They're good things to do. But tied to Passover, especially in the new light that we have in Jesus, I think that's where there's so much richness to be found. You know, our, our Easter story... Without Passover, it's just this guy that turns up and, and apparently it's the Son of God who dies for us. But actually in the light of Passover, it's for thousands of years, people have been doing this ceremony, talking about the time that God saved them using the blood of a lamb. Now Jesus comes along and he's, he's part of that story. He, he's doing something new with that imagery, but it's not just this guy that turns up out of nowhere. It's something that's been foretold for thousands of years. So the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, as I mentioned, the two names get interchanged a little bit, so it ends up being the week of Passover sometimes. So this, this last supper with Jesus at the time of Passover, it says, after the bread and wine, Luke records that the disciples start arguing about who is the greatest. It's, it's quite a weird part of the story, that they're in the middle of their Passover meal, and now they're arguing about who is the greatest. And this is literally the time where they're meant to be getting rid of all the yeast from, from the house. This, this is a time to symbolically inspecting yourself, um, confessing your sins to God, you know, self-reflection. That, that was the imagery used in the unleavened bread. The, the idea that you're taking it all out of your house. Your, your kids are asking, what the heck are you guys doing? You know, you're throwing out my, my bread, my cereal. Why do we do this once a year? The, the point is that it was an object lesson to to represent the sin, you know, a little bit of sin spoils the whole lot as the imagery used throughout the Bible, as it is with the yeast. And so in Exodus, there's a few aspects of that feast outlined, you know, the lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs, it says. And over time, this Passover tradition expands, and we get these, these kind of liturgies or formal structures of how the meal would unfold. And we can find lots of writings from rabbis over the years 
is they provide a bit more context and they answer questions that people had. And they start putting together these sort of order of service for a Passover meal so that people could confidently host a Passover meal in their own home with their own families that could give them advice on songs to sing, scriptures to read, questions to engage with your kids, that kind of thing. So we can find these pretty early on. And I just want to give a, a quick rough outline of some of the things that would happen during a Passover meal. Um, so there's a little bit more to this, but I'm, again, going to rush through it. So just as a quick outline, um, they, they would in, generally involve the kids. So that was one of the key aspects of this, that it's from generation to generation. You're repeating this every year so that your kids understand what it is you're talking about. That was a big part of these festivals. So four days before the Passover meal, they would go out and they'd pick a lamb. And the, the kids would make sure it's one without defect. You know, they're inspecting the lambs, find, find the cutest one, make sure it's suitable, and then you take it home and you look after it for a few days. And then you have a very awkward conversation with your kids about what must happen to, you know, Fluffy the lamb that they're now starting to like. This, you know, this thing would have become a bit of a pet, right? You can imagine, you know, people with kids, if you brought a lamb into your house for three days and then said, this is dinner. Yeah, heartbreak, exactly. That's, that is the right response. Yeah. So this evening of Passover comes and you tell your kids, sorry guys, we have to kill this lamb. This is a symbol of how God saved our ancestors from this plague of death that was coming. I know that the lamb doesn't deserve to die. And, and that's the point, right? The lamb doesn't deserve to die. The death, death is coming for us and our family, but we can offer this lamb in a sacrifice, and we paint the blood on the doors above and on the sides, and then God will know to pass over this house. And these days, people still celebrate Passover today in many places, and what they'll often do is they'll put red streamers along the door, or they'll paint on glad wrap or bits of paper. You, know, you don't really want to be putting blood on your doors or red paint on your doors, but they, they still keep that symbolism there. But you can see how that symbolism comes even more alive in light of Jesus, right? The innocent dying for the wicked. You know, the, the wrongness of it all. You know, the love that you'd have for that smelly, noisy lamb that you've had for four days in your house is nothing compared to the, the love that the Father would have had for Jesus. Yet it was the only way. That it's only his blood that can save us. Next, you get your family together and you clean out the pantry. You get rid of all the yeast in the house. You throw out your bread, any cereals, your biscuits, whatever it is. You're, you're breeding the back of your box, making sure you figure out has it got yeast, out it goes. And again, this is another teaching opportunity when you're talking with your kids. I mean, they're looking at you saying, it's perfectly good bread, why are we throwing this out? It's, it's an opportunity to engage with your kids and say, you know, this is a time that we examine ourselves and we confess our sins to God in seeking forgiveness. It's an object lesson that's easy to understand. Like I mentioned about, you know, the picture there is a little bit of yeast is enough to raise the whole loaf. And again, a little bit of sin will corrupt the whole lot. So again, if you did this every year with your kids, it wouldn't take them long to learn this stuff, would it? You know, repetition is, is such an important part for keeping these traditions alive. So next, you know, they've painted the door, got the lamb cooking, removed the yeast, the meal itself would begin. And they would eat bitter herbs to symbolise the bitterness and the tears of slavery. And they would, they would eat bread and dip it in this sort of chunky, pasty-like stuff called, kind of pronounce it terribly, like heroset. I think there's a bit more of a ha sort of sound in there. But it's, it's this sort of chunky dip, and that, that's 
to symbolize the mortar, you know, the, the hard labor that they were doing in Egypt. So they got the bitterness and the slavery and this, this hard work that they're remembering. And, you know, that encouraged questions from the kids to help them understand that some, some of the liturgies or orders of service actually have questions that, you know, your youngest kid asks you this, your next kid asks you this. You know, the kids are asking, every, every other meal we eat, all these other veggies, why is it this meal we only eat the bitter ones? And you would explain to them, you're remembering the, the tears of slavery and the, the situation of, of long ago. And again, this, you know, this side of Jesus, there's light in that too, right? That, that we can examine the uh, slavery to sin and, and the, bur- the burden of sin. Jesus uses that same, can use that same imagery to bring out so much more into that Passover meal. And throughout the night, they would have four glasses of wine. And before you think that sounds like a really good night, they, there were laws about watering down the wine. It had to be doubly watered down with water. The point is definitely not to get drunk. The point is symbolism and remembering. Remembering being the key fact. So the first cup, this was actually the start of the night. So this is before the bitter herbs. Each of these cups relates to part of the Exodus story. So the first cup is known as the I will bring you out. And that relates to the, the, the line that says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the, oak, under the yoke of the Egyptians. So throughout the night they're retelling the Exodus story and at certain points they, they'll have the drink to, to remind them of the, the part that they're up to. So then after the herbs there would be the second cup, which is I will deliver you. Where he says, I will deliver you from their bondage. And then they would break the bread and eat the main menu, eat the main meal. After the, after the meal, you're eating your roast lamb, a bit more bread, a bit more bitter veggies, if you choose. After that meal, there is the third cup. And, and this cup is called the I will redeem you. you know, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with, with great judgments, is, is the passage from Exodus. And in 1 Corinthians, along with you know, our communion liturgy and in the Gospels, it specifies in some of those examples that after supper, he took the cup. You know, this, this is probably a specific cup at Passover that he's taken. He's not just taking a random glass of wine and picking it up. This is the cup after supper. This is the cup of redemption. So Jesus is taking this understanding and the meaning of this existing cup, the, the redemption cup, and he's, you know, they've got this understanding in the Passover context that they've all done for years, and he's expanding that understanding. He says, you know this cup is the time we, we God redeemed his, our people out of Egypt. Now I want you to remember me in this cup. He's saying, we remember it as the blood of the lamb that saved. Now remember it that it's my blood. This is my blood. He's transforming that meaning that they already know. And then again at Passover, there would be a fourth cup at the end to conclude the evening. And there's a little bit of guessing here, so I, I want to sort of paraphrase that, that perhaps this is a grey area. I'm not pushing it too hard. Um, the, the gospel account doesn't go into detail. We need to be sure of this. But in Matthew's account, when he took the cup after supper, and he says, you know, this is the blood of the new covenant, he also goes on to say... I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So a lot of people say that you know this, this, this is Jesus perhaps saying he didn't drink that fourth cup that night. Um, it, it's a really interesting idea because that fourth cup 
the, the phrase associated with that one is that I will take you. The part of the Exodus story that comes from that says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So, so some people suggest that perhaps Jesus hasn't transformed the meaning of that fourth cup for us yet because he hasn't taken us, has he? Um, you know, Jesus goes on to say that, you know, I'll, I'll prepare a place for you, that, you know, but we're not there yet, are we? Um, so yeah, again, I don't, I don't want to push it too hard, but perhaps... I don't know, I think there might be something in that, that that fourth cup perhaps wasn't drunk in that night by Jesus intentionally. And they would actually have a fifth, fifth glass that they would fill. This, this is, wasn't everyone gets this fifth glass, this is one that was set out in the room. And this was an extra cup that they put aside for Elijah. Now, the, the people of Israel were expecting their Messiah to come one day and save them, and part of that story was that they were expecting Elijah to come before that and, you know, pave the way for him. So before the Messiah come, they would expect to see Elijah. That was their tradition. So these days, they would encourage the kids to go call out, you know, Elijah, Elijah, see if he's here, as a way of reminding, reminding them the story that, we're, you know, we're waiting for a Messiah. We're waiting for the, the Elijah to come and, and pave the way for him. They'd set aside out and hope that he's coming this year. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing you know, a pretty scathing letter to the Corinthians where he says that what they do is a disgrace to the Lord's Supper. He says you know, that, that one person gets drunk and the other goes hungry. And it's, you know, this is years after Jesus has died. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting to see that even at this time, communion probably didn't look like a small sip of wine and a tiny bit of bread. Clearly there was enough in this context for people to get drunk and get full on and other people to go hungry. So it's quite interesting that still early on in church history, we adopt this practice of a little wafer and a little bit of drink, which I think in light of this, Jesus was, was talking of a Passover meal. Obviously when he says, drink this wine and eat this bread to remember me, we can, we can do that with any wine and any bread, can't we? We don't need the Passover, the full Passover meal in the full Passover context. But I, I, I suggest it is better to have that. Um, and, and what I mean is, you know, it's... You know, um, sorry. Jesus, Jesus said, do this whenever you eat it and whenever you drink it. To me, to me, it makes more sense to understand this as whenever you drink this Passover wine and whenever you eat this unleavened bread during this festival. Again, they were, they were expecting to keep, continue these festivals. He's saying, remember me and this transformed meaning. You know, the fullness of this festival is found in me, he's saying. The way that you used to Passover, to celebrate Passover, the way it's been done for all these years, has just been a foreshadowing of what's to come. Now I have revealed the fullness of understanding in this Passover celebration. And, and personally, I think it's a shame that the church has lost that tradition. Not because I'm saying that we should do it or God will be mad or, you know, it's, it's not a, a legalistic issue or a salvation issue. You know, not because we're held under the laws of Israel that we should do it, none of that. But because I think we're missing out on the richness of that ceremony that we now see in Jesus. Now in saying that, as I mentioned before, I'm going to do a 180 and say that I actually think it's great that the church does the way communion we do. And there's many practical reasons why the church does it this way. And I know that sounds like a contradiction. Um, But in a perfect world, I think we would aim to do both. uh, To remember Jesus in the Passover meal, the fullness of the symbolism, but also have communion more regularly in these 
sort of, it's, it's almost a mini Passover remembrance, isn't it? They're taking the, the key elements and remembering it. You know, I wouldn't dare suggest that we should spend less time or less often remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us, right? That would be a, a very strange thing to suggest. And using that symbolism of bread and wine is still a great way to do that, even if it's not in the context of a full Passover dinner. It also makes it a lot more accessible, doesn't it? We can't, well, I guess we could do a full Passover feast every Sunday. That'd be an interesting way to do things. But, but realistically, it's a lot more practical to, to shrink that and, and focus on those key symbols. You know, it, it, it's practical in the sense that it gives people more opportunities to participate rather than just once a year. I remember a while ago talking to this Lutheran guy, and generally speaking, Lutherans are really keen on their tradition, perhaps more so than, you know, high Anglicanness. Um, and, and it was an interesting take that he said what he loves about all the traditions that you know he goes to church, they have communion every week, they have their liturgies, they have you know confession, they have their prayer books. And he said the great thing about that is if you turn up to church on Sunday and you've got a rubbish sermon. The music's off key, there's kids yelling in the background, you can't hear anything. If you've got the worst church service possible, you still turn up and you get these elements of being remember, remembering to confess your sin to God, knowing that you are forgiven, being reminded that it's Jesus' blood that, that gives us forgiveness. So, you, you know, there's actually beauty in those liturgy that I'm, I'm starting to see more, perhaps, as I grow up, and yeah, I'm, I'm appreciating it more than I definitely used to. When we were looking at the sacrament of baptism, I kind of outlined three questions, which I think are a useful way to help summarise and make sense of communion too. So I want to quickly end with those. We were looking at what is communion, what does it do, and who should do it. So we've basically covered what is communion. It has its roots in the Old Testament celebration of Passover. And in particular, it's given new meaning by Jesus when he shared that Passover meal with his disciples before he died. You know, he, he transforms the meaning behind that ceremony. His death builds on that same sacrificial system of Passover. Jesus is telling us that he is the lamb that was slain and that he is that unleavened bread. And just like the people of Israel were told to repeat this every year to remember what happened, Jesus tells us also, also to remember what he did for us using that same symbolism of bread and wine. And what does it do? Again, similar to baptism, I'm tempted to say nothing, but again, that doesn't feel quite right. You know, the, the key thing is that what is being declared and the remembrance and the meaning behind it. You know, as I said, you know, baptism is about claiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. Without that meaning, it, it's just a washing, it's just a bath. So same with communion. You know, Paul, Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, there's meaning behind what we do. It's, it's not a meal, it's not, it's not just morning tea that we're gathering for. It's proclaiming the death of Jesus, and it's pointing to our saviour. Yeah, we're not doing this to satisfy our physical need for food. This is us proclaiming Jesus' death. When we partake in communion, we are reminding ourselves that Jesus died for us, that it is his sacrifice is what makes us right with God. And hopefully we're not just reminding ourselves by doing this regularly. We're making... You know, kids and visitors wonder what's going on. We're providing opportunities to share that with them too, opening conversations. So some people do teach that communion does save and get you know, very worked up about the right way to do it. 
Um, for example, you know, the Catholic Church teaches that the bread literally turns into the flesh of Jesus and that wine really does transform into blood. And that, you know, taking communion properly is essential for salvation. So obviously we don't believe that. Um, just, just like baptism, there are some beliefs around that too. You know, the important part is the meaning and declaration that we're making, not whether we have you know, wafers or flatbread or if it's gluten-free or not, whether it's wine or grape juice. The thing that saves us isn't getting those elements right. The, things that, the thing that saves us is what Jesus did, not what we do. You know, often in a lot of you know, church paintings, particularly sort of around that, that Greek area, you see them at the Last Supper and Jesus holding up a big loaf of bread. That's one of my favourite ones. Um, obviously that's not accurate, is it? That Last Supper being a Passover meal, that, that would have been a flat bread, unleavened bread. And, and again, I don't, I don't think that's a big, a big deal. You know, if you have leavened bread at, at your communion or at your Passover, I think you're ruining the symbolism. But it's, it's, again, it's, it's a... It's, it's a non-issue. It's, it's not the accuracy of those elements that saves us. And, and a lot of churches historically would emphasize all drinking from one cup. And, and again, this is great for that symbolism, you know, Paul talking that we, you know, we all drink of the one cup, that we're drinking into the, into the one body. And again, I love that symbolism, but that's not essential, is it? it it's, we can drink from individual cups and still understand that we are drinking into the one body of Jesus. So what does it do? It powerfully points to Jesus as our deliverer and our redeemer, and it helps us to remember and to proclaim and teach what Jesus did. And lastly, who should do it? And again, Paul tells us this is not a meal, this is not a snack. He actually uses some pretty serious language to make sure we know that you know, he's not messing around, that we need, we need to treat this sacrament with respect. And the answer to this question is, is again, similar to baptism, that all, all who believe in the good news that Jesus has died for their sins and trust in the promise that there is no more condemnation or punishment or distance between them and God, anyone who trusts that what Jesus did was enough should join in communion. So if you're ready to identify yourself with Jesus and his death and resurrection, then you are encouraged to come and partake in communion, symbolically partaking in the body and blood of Christ proclaiming his death and sacrifice for you. So as I pass over to Sarah to lead us in communion, I just want to point out if if there's any reason that you feel you're not ready to partake in communion, if there's any specific questions or barriers that you have, um, please reach out to Graham or Sarah, myself or or anyone really. Um, We'd we'd love to chat about that and and see what we can do to, to help you there.